Austin, do you remember how long it took me to find a podcast platform for us? Forever. I ended up finding one called Anchor, and I initially chose it just because it was free. But it also has a creation tool that allows you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or your computer. They also distributed for us, so that's why we ended up on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and all of our other places. And you can even make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. Everything you need to make a podcast in just one place. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hi friends, this is Maddie. We both got struck down by the stomach flu this weekend, so we weren't able to record a new episode. Luckily for you, we had a couple of episodes we practiced with before we ever started. So what you're getting today is an episode from before I knew how to do anything with Audacity. So I apologize for any bad audio quality, but we appreciate you listening anyway. And we're both feeling better. I know you were very concerned. Thanks, enjoy. All right, so um, this is our test episode for Will This Be On The Test? We're doing this today to see if we can figure out audacity because we've never used it. And plus we need to practice our banter because we're great at it, but I'm not sure if we can do it on demand yet. Um, Everyone will always appreciate our banter. We are comedic geniuses. We are comedic geniuses and soon the world will begin to appreciate our genius. It's about time. Or else. Uh, Anyway, this is Maddie. This is Austin. And the structure of this is we are going to talk about what we learned in school about different historical topics and how that might differ from the reality of the topics. And also things we didn't learn in school because they are batshit insane and don't really fit the narrative they like to teach you in school. Now, to clarify, this is not the teacher's faults. No. Um, This is... Uh, The textbooks are largely created in Texas. We have to follow what's on the textbook's curriculum. That matches up to what goes on the national standardized tests, blah, blah, blah. The teachers basically teach what they have to teach in order to keep their jobs and try to throw in the other things when they can. But we also know that teachers' jobs are usually threatened when they throw in the quote-unquote inappropriate histories. And plus, we both think history is kind of fun. And we like to talk about it sometimes. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to start this today. We I am talking about Krista McAuliffe. Okay. Krista McAuliffe, we learned in school, was a teacher who was sent into space on the Challenger. And then the Challenger blew up and everyone died. But she's a hero. Uh, that's about all I learned about yeah. her. Um, I learned a little, basically that much. And that there's an elementary school named after her like a mile from here. Yeah, and I always assumed that she was an elementary school teacher. Was she an elementary school teacher? She was not. Oh. Um, I always assumed she was an elementary school teacher because we learned about her in elementary school, and she was never brought up again, despite the fact that Austin and I were in high school on the 20th anniversary of this high school teacher's death. That is where we are. All right, uh, Krista McAuliffe was born Sharon Krista Corrigan on September 2nd, 1948 in Boston. Uh, She went on to study education and history at Framingham State College in Massachusetts and then education supervision and administration from Bowie State University in Maryland. She married Stephen McAuliffe, hence the last name McAuliffe, and she also always went by Krista, who was a guy she'd known since high school. She ultimately had two kids named Scott and Caroline, who were nine years old and six years old when she died. Now, she was a high school teacher. And she was also not a science teacher, which one would assume that someone sent into space was. She was actually a social studies history teacher. 
And, okay, she's a baller. Um, not only was she, like, universally loved by her students, but she taught uh, history, American history, uh, law, economics, and then this is what makes her a baller. She made up a class and taught one called the American Woman. Really? So she was, like, crazy feminist? Yeah, well... Awesome. I mean, I never saw that word attributed to her, but I would kind of assume so. Um, cause, I mean, we'll get into this in other episodes, but we never learned about women in history. No, we um, learned that they got the vote and nothing happened after that. No, no, women have never existed outside of that one time. Yes. Anyway, um, now, this is another cool thing about her, which is why she is the kind of history teacher who would have really hated the testing society we're currently in. Because her focuses as a teacher was on ordinary citizens and their contributions to history. Um, and she would always say that they were just as important as the kings, politicians, and generals because there were more of them. And they really did make as many contributions, if not more, than the guys who took credit for them. So that is the beginning of her. Now, when uh, 1984 comes along, uh, President Reagan, he introduced the Teacher in Space Project. That would have resulted in the first civilian ever going into space. And it received 11,000 applicants. NASA wanted to do it because they thought it would increase interest in the space program because at the time people were like, we're wasting our money. What's out in space? And unfortunately, to prove the reliability of the space program and space oh, flights. No. So after many, many rounds, they narrowed it down to 10 people who were sent to the Johnson Space Center for their medical exams, space briefings. Uh, she was chosen because of her enthusiasm and being the most broad-based and best balanced out of all of their candidates. And then they also chose a woman named Barbara Morgan as her backup. And she comes back later. Both teachers took a year-long leave from their jobs and NASA paid their salaries. And as far as I could understand, they were paid teacher salaries for that year, not NASA astronaut salaries. Do NASA astronauts make a lot of money? I don't know, but I would imagine they make more than a teacher because who doesn't? Yeah, yeah. And so, of course, she became super-duper famous, was interviewed on everything, and she was, she'd wanted to go into space since she was in high school. She was in high school, I think it was high school, when the... Um, first man walked on the moon she, this is what she wanted and so oh, we just had like the 50th anniversary of that like yeah. not long ago yeah just a couple days ago I think. yeah wow she said on donnie carson if you're offered a seat on a rocket ship don't ask what seat just get on so she was like ready to go on this okay would you turn down an opportunity to go to space yes because i uh get motion sick and i would vomit all over everybody and there'd be balls of vomit flying around and people would be eating my vomit and then they'd it's a whole thing i'm glad i asked this question <laughs> I will not, we will not go into space. <laughs> That's probably for the best, yeah. although when this planet ultimately implodes, you I can mean, go. We're, we're going to die anyway. It's fine. Are we, though? I was, yeah. I, I was told we were immortal after drinking that potion. But there was only one potion, and the other one was deadly poison. Which one did you drink? Did I have the poison? So are you saying one of us must be a ghost right now? I mean, am I showing up on this recording? The little blue lines are working. Maybe only people who can see ghosts can see the blue lines and hear me. Maybe so, listeners. A... <laughs> if you can hear my voice, you can hear dead people, um, avoid cemeteries, and also avoid spoilers to the movie The Sixth Sense. It... Everybody knows how that movie ends. So, fast forward to January um, twenty eighth, nineteen eighty six. They boarded the Challenger with six other crew members, and I just want to make sure their names get mentioned because they never do. Their names were Gregory Jarvis, Judith Resnick, Dick Scobie, 
Donald McNair, Mike Smith, and let's see if I can do it, Ellison Onakuza. And it's really cool. There was another woman on board that was Judith. They had a couple people of color. This was a super diverse group. 73 seconds in, the Challenger, for lack of a better word at the time, exploded. It was attributed to an O-ring failure. O-rings, pressure seal something. There were a bunch of science terms that I didn't understand. So okay. basically something wasn't sealed. And they attributed it to the fact that, it, remember in Florida, it was only 36 degrees outside, which was 15 degrees colder than the only other cold flight they'd done. Oh, damn. So that was all it took was temperature. That also goes back to the belief slash rumor that the White House pressured NASA to move this along too quickly, meaning they couldn't do all of their testing. Here's where things start to get real horrible and we get into the stuff that was never touched upon in school. So they might have mentioned in your school at some point that it was being watched by kids. Obviously, it was on the news. What they probably didn't mention is that, well, most major news sources turned off the feed the moment that it exploded. NASA had set up a direct satellite feed to a lot of schools and it could not be shut off. Oh. So school kids all around the country, if not the world, are watching it, including her own students at Concord <sighs> High School who were in the auditorium, about 200 kids, watching this. Oh, God. They were talking about how they were really excited. They did the countdown with the announcer. They're all cheering as it goes off. They kept cheering after the explosion because they did not understand what they were looking at until someone yelled, damn it, there was a major malfunction, shut up so we can hear. And so now you have 200 kids and their teachers watching this happen, seeing oh, no. one of their favorite staff members presumably die. Classes were canceled for the rest of the day, and they even ended up having to cancel some of the counseling sessions for the adults because they had to focus on the kids. These teachers are having to focus on the kids like we always did after school shootings. And to make things worse, this was the second tragedy in the school in two months. Remember, this is 1986. Six. And so in December of 1985, a dropout entered their school with a gun and had to be killed by the police after he took two of the students hostage. In 1985? 1985. This did not start with Columbine. And McAuliffe was really upset that she had taken this astronaut position because she wanted to be there for her kids when that happened. So they also interviewed some other people during that time, including other teachers who um, had applied for the program. And one of them said, I hope after what's happened, no one questions the dedication of a teacher. Well, now we are 33 years later and the internet exists. So we kind of see all the time that this had uh, no bearing on people's opinions of teachers. Oh, no. I mean, you guys are what? Lazy, overpaid, and you get summers off. I mean. Oh, yeah. And we uh, we hate the kids, but we also should all be armed despite the fact that we hate the kids. Okay. You should never be armed. I've, I've seen you with scissors and it's flaily and dangerous. I don't want you to have mm -hmm. a gun. All right, so uh, here's some other things that were not so much learned in school. So first of all was the fact that it didn't explode. There was no better word for what happened, and even NASA was using it. But actually what happened was that a fuel tank collapsed, and so the place was flooded with liquid oxygen and hydrogen, creating a fireball, not an explosion, which is ultimately why they were able to recover the bodies. Now, I want you to also think about what probably happened immediately after that. If it's not an explosion, you don't die. It's likely that they survived. Like, they survived? Like, how long? We're not sure. It's likely that they survived the 
initial thing because it was actually intact for a little bit. They likely died of oxygen deficiency, but it is possible, though unlikely, that they regained consciousness before hitting the water. That's when I was sitting here researching going, oh dear God, oh dear God, that you got to hear. So, oh my gosh, at least... At least they were, like, unconscious when they hit. I mean, if they'd woken up... Possibly. Po- oh, possibly unconscious. That's... Probably. Possibly dead already. That's kind of what we have to hope for in this situation. Ooh, oh, man. Because two minutes and 45 seconds after this, they hit the water at 200 miles per hour. Almost three solid minutes, these kids are watching this fireball go into the ocean. I'm going to oh. be updating my planning on this later on. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I know, I'm looking at your notes. It's like one eleven. Nine. There is no seven. 11 on here. There was an 11. So they went on to interview other people, obviously. And one of them was the husband's co-worker who kind of implied that he had never, the husband had never been briefed on the actual dangers. And even in interviews, nobody was asking him about his worries for his wife. They were asking, are you worried about being Mr. Mom while she's gone for a year? Because <laughs> it was the 80s and now. So they really didn't see this coming. Nobody saw this coming. And so this poor man has to stand there with their two children and watch this. Yeah, space is super dangerous. Psh! Like, no. tell these things. It's like, no, they're sending you into space on basically a large pile of barely contained explosion. Mm-hmm. So afterwards, for the first and only time in history, Reagan postponed his message to the nation, he's the only one who's ever done that, to make a speech on this topic. And it actually only, I think it was 650 words, and it's considered one of, if not the best speech of his entire administration. So it's pretty horrible so far, right? Yeah. Which really differs from the, it was a, she was a hero and everything was fine. They didn't remove all the bodies. They didn't find them for 10 weeks. Like, what? Does it look like, was it like really deep underwater where they're having like salvage problems? Yes, that's part of it. They sent divers down. They found Judy Resnick first, brought her up. They found Krista McAuliffe second, brought her up. And then they realized this was too dangerous for them to be in. So they had to send, they were telling NASA, we can't safely do this. You have to go. And so they sent the USS Preserver, I think. I can't read my handwriting, to pull it up with a crane. It was too heavy. They manage to get it up, but then as they're pulling it up, they see an astronaut body pop up and then go back down. And so five weeks later, they finally recovered Gregory Jarvis. So ultimately, she, her body was able to be buried in Blossom Hill Cemetery back in Concord, Massachusetts, or Concord, New Hampshire. Where is Concord? Connecticut? <laughs> Connecticut, I think. Where I know, okay. It's Concord in Cut the Northeast. <laughs> Steven! Wait. <laughs> That's not us. <laughs> um, so she was ultimately able to be buried. And then more than 10 years later, two more pieces of the shuttle washed up on the beach. These weighed thousands and thousands of pounds. They closed the investigation in just a couple of months. And they still had shit washing up 10 years later. Okay, every time, like, someone goes to a beach and it's like they always find something awful washed up on the shore. Or at least that's what happens in places that have beaches where in Kansas where there is no water or fun. And it's like every time I hear about a beach, it's something is washed up onto it, whether it be sea monster parts or space shuttles or feet. Feet that were attached to jumpers, except for the one guy who they found who had both feet and was alive. What is going on with that? Aliens. Clones. Doppelgangers. Alternate dimensions. I'm a big believer in this, so yeah. So we'll look, we're going to jump into the future again. Aftermath. Most of which is actually thankfully positive. Many of her 
students and both of her kids became teachers. Um, and one of her te- one of her students, Joanne Walton, who taught in Fairfax, Virginia, every time she has a bad day, she thinks, what would Krista do? There are, of course, as you mentioned earlier, a lot of schools named after her. I think almost every place I've lived in had at least one. It's at least 40 that we know of. A billion different awards and scholarships, but I think this is the greatest honor of all. Are you ready? Ready. From 1996 to 1997, there was an amazing show called Space Cases. It was on, I think it was Nickelodeon, and it was a group of kids who were in space. And one of them was Jewel State, who would go on to be Kaylee in Firefly. Her character was named Rosie, and she was bright red. And their (laughs) ship was named Krista. Oh. Biggest honor of all, I think, to be on a kid's show like that. Yes. I regret I do have 11. Ah. (laughs) Now, uh, Barbara Morgan, her backup. Okay. She didn't quit after that. She actually became the first educator in space in 2007 after becoming a full-fledged astronaut in 1998. So she actually is a legit astronaut now. Yay. And then, just at the end of last year, two former... There are a lot of teachers who became astronauts. Two former teachers, Joe Akabat and Ricky Arnold, got Krista McAuliffe's original lesson plans and taught them from space. I hope it wasn't anything like super outdated. Like they updated some information okay. and they supplemented it, or they altered it for life on the International Space Station because that's where they taught from. Good, because I'm like this was like eight nineteen eighty six, so there could have been a big lesson about. And this is the USSR kids. Actually, though, I read something. I wish I'd written it down. The Soviet Union even did a lot of stuff to honor her. Really? Yeah. Huh. Like this woman was internationally known and as a badass who was doing really good things. And there are some things that you just can't deny are good things. And there also is another movie coming out starring Michelle Williams, who is the star of every movie now. Can, uh, I know this is an unpopular opinion, but I hate Michelle Williams. <laughs> I don't hate Michelle Williams. I'm just confused about why it's she just, was in a musical. It's like every time it's like I see her in something, it's like there's seven people who are better than this than Michelle Williams. Like there were seven people on the Challenger. <gasps> okay, so quickly, quickly. I'm going to have Austin tell me whether he thinks something would be on a test or would not be on a test. Okay. Krista McAuliffe was born Sharon Krista Corrigan on September 2nd, 1948. I would say yes, that would be on the test because there's a date in it. Exactly. She was one of 11,000 applicants. Yes, because there's a number in it. Mm-hmm. There were six other crew members who all had names. Oh, no, no. Those were those were like supplementary cast members. And again, their names. Gregory Jarvis, Judith Resnick, Dick Scobie, Donald McNair, Mike Smith, Ellison, Oracusa. People who were just as important and loved by their families. They might have lived after the explosion. Would that be on the test? No. Would that even have been taught? No, because you have to protect these precious children. Yeah, from science. It took 10 weeks to find the bodies. No, that will not be on the test. This was on January 28th, 1986. Yes. That would be on the test. That would be on the test. And people were really sad afterwards for a very long time, and many were actually scarred for life. Oh no, that would never be on the test, because everything ends immediately after the event. There is no aftermath to anything. All right, so that is the story of Krista McAuliffe, who was a legit badass, a legit hero, and deserves to be taught in schools. But she and the rest of her crew deserve to have their whole story told. Gosh, that was a bummer. I know, I told you. You heard me sitting here going, oh dear God, I just and assumed, why, and how. I just assumed you were watching the news again. 
I mean, that sounds accurate. Okay, so let's move on to yours. Okay, well, fortunately, I've got something that is a little bit lighter, mm-hmm. a, a little bit crazier, and a lot of bit older. So we're going to talk about the Burr Conspiracy. The Burr Conspiracy. We did not it's... learn anything. So tell me something about Aaron Burr that you did not learn from the musical Hamilton. That I did not learn from the musical Hamilton? Yep. Aaron Burr was vice president. I did learn that he shot Alexander Hamilton in a duel, one of three mentions of Alexander Hamilton. So the Aaron Burr conspiracy is weird. It involved, like, he was accused of treason, but it kind of doesn't start with Aaron Burr. It starts while he was vice president, but it starts with this guy named James Wilkerson. He'd been, like, you know, a, an officer in the Revolutionary War. He had been, like, a political figure in Kentucky and Tennessee who back then was actually conspiring with the Spanish government in Mexico and New Spain to get Kentucky and Tennessee to secede from the United States. What is New Spain? New Spain? Uh, That's the Spanish colonies that were literally right next door to America. In Mexico? Yeah. That was New Spain. I didn't know about any of this. You didn't know about New Spain? No. I Okay, you have to understand, I didn't ever learn about Mexico in history. Oh, classes. you are this is going to be so educational. Oh, that's you know. a fun thing to add. I moved a lot and there was no standardized national curriculum. It's it's so funny. He keeps trying to arrange revolution in Tennessee and Kentucky. The Spanish government's actually funding him until a point where they lose confidence in him and they actually issue an order to no longer support him in his crazy schemes to secede from the United States and cause a revolution. After this, when everybody knows this, and this is a thing that he'd been doing for a while. We're talking about Wilkerson right Wilkerson. Now. Okay. Wilkerson had been doing this. Burr gets him appointed as the governor of the Louisiana Territory right after the Louisiana Purchase. He was actually one of the guys who was there to claim Louisiana from France after they bought it. So then, immediately after he's made the governor of Louisiana, he again renews his attempts at treason with the help of Spain. This is a theme. This is going to come up a lot. I have to remember that Spain exists. Remember that Spain exists, and they have colonies in America and Mexico. When the Corps of Discovery is formed, Wilkerson sends letters to the Spanish authorities about these expeditions in an attempt to get them stopped and create a big international incident and hopefully start a war with New Spain that he can capitalize to do this stuff. And Burr is involved in this too. But so the Lewis and Clark expedition goes off fine. They're like far north. Nothing happens. There's a second expedition about the same time called the Freeman and Custis expedition. Is that not as cute of a story? Oh, it's it's like almost nothing. They, they get about 200 miles in when they run into a Spanish patrol. There's a very brief short standoff in which uh, they ask for a note to explain why they've been sent back to their bosses without any information. And they return and there's like a minor, mi- it's a minor scandal for Jefferson and he's a little bit embarrassed by this, but they come home fine. But then... I'm going to talk to you about my favorite explorer in American history by the name of Zebulon Pike. Why don't you hear the name Zebulon anymore? It's, I know. It's like millennials, your children have to be named Zebulon. There will uh, be no other Zebulons in your mommy group. So You know, we millennials kill everything, but we did not kill the name Zebulon. We did not kill the name Zebulon. I remember hearing the name in school. I yeah. don't remember anything about him. Um, he, uh, he was like one of the, he explored, he was a big explorer. He went to Minnesota, did some stuff there. Then he was on this expedition where famously Pike's Peak is named after Zebulon Pike. That's probably the only reason I ever heard the name. Yeah. He uh, tried to climb it and failed because it was snowy and he hadn't eaten for a couple of days, so they turned back. So I mean, shortly after discovering Pike's Peak, they get lost and they end up in New Mexico and are taken prisoner by the Spanish. 
this is not like taken prisoner prisoner like we understand it this was like for him it was very much a oh you're a gentleman so we're gonna let you kind of wander around do your thing but you're coming with us if you would please (laughs) oh his men are actually like taken prisoner prisoner they're like in jail but he's kind of wandering around doing stuff talk like going to dinner parties i don't know what prison looks like for you that's what it always looks like for me so this is also very funny while he was prisoner he mailed two grizzly bear cubs to thomas jefferson because like you know he was that kind of prisoner so he's like oh let me get these it's like i need some i bought some grizzly bear cubs okay please tell me this turns into an explanation of how these were sent through the mail and they have a stamp on them i have no idea was there some postal worker carrying them in like these really big bags i kind of hope so i'm assuming there was like a crate that said warning danger grizzly bears and they were just kind of dropped off on his lawn and he opened them up someone had to feed them yeah well, actually, they were they were being fed Indian bread. I don't know what that is. I don't want to know what that is. I'm assuming it's cornbread. I hope so. But anyway, he gets these bears, and the quote is, They are too dangerous and troublesome for me to keep. I shall therefore send them to Peel's museum. Now, Peel, the guy had his museum, had actually had a grizzly bear before. It had proved to be too dangerous and troublesome, and had escaped and had to be put down. Naturally, Jefferson sends him two bears, but the process is taking a really long time. I know this is a tangent. I just love this. I have to tell it. It's taking a really long time. So there was about two months in which there were these two grizzly bears roaming around the White House lawn. They were just out there and he was feeding them cornbread. And he was like, they're fine, fairly behaved because they were little. But so they finally get there and he's got a cage for them, but they quickly outgrow it. And they grew quite large and were dangerous and troublesome and broke out and terrorized the house and his household very briefly until they were shot in the basement kitchen. The bears were shot or members of the household were shot the by the bears? The bears got the guns. <laughs> that... Are there ghost bears at the White House? Did you look this up? I didn't look this up. I mean, the bears weren't shot in the White House. They were at this museum in Philadelphia. Okay, you know there's a ghost of a bear at the Tower of London, right? Why is there a ghost of the bear at the Tower of London? I will have to look that up because I don't remember why. Oh! But there's a ghost bear at the Tower of London. So, Austin, I'm very disappointed in you not looking up if these resulted in ghost bears. It did not result in ghost... It did result in creepy taxidermy bears. Oh, no. Yeah. Well, everything... Dude, all nature science back then was creepy taxidermy. So, anyway, so Zebulon Pike, um, he's taken to the the Commandant General Sarcedo in Chihuahua, Mexico, where he's held prisoner and he's released sometime in 1807 and he's, he and his men just go back to Louisiana. He also had his notes confiscated from him because they thought he was going to try to spread Protestant prop, pro, and democratic propaganda in New Spain. I mean, he probably was. That's, I mean, that's what, it's, that's what I do every time I'm in New Spain. Every time you're in New Spain, you're like, you gotta hear about these Protestants. Let me tell you about the evils of Catholicism, children. Uh, there you go again. I know, I can't help it. So... This is this was a big embarrassment for Jefferson, but this was all like after the Burr conspiracy really kicks off. We don't really know what the goals of this conspiracy were. Do we really know what any of Aaron Burr's goals were? No. It's like some people, according to him, he was simply trying to arrange an expedition and take possession of when he leased the state of Texas from Spain and was going to farm the state of Texas. He was like, oh yeah, I'm totally leasing Spain. And actually did lease Spain. You can find the documents of when he leased all of this land from Spain in Texas. There is some evidence that he was trying to go out, start his own government in the West and by stealing Louisiana Purchase and being pals with Spain. So they kind of like keep his back or being subservient to Spain or some combination of where he gets to become the ruler of his own fiefdom and Spain backs him up and he stole it all from America. Even going so far as to like staging a full coup and revolution in America and seizing DC. This is as far as it goes. 
DC. DC. Washington, okay, DC. Seizing the sea. Yes, he was going to become the king of Atlantis. So, <laughs> Screw you, Poseidon. This is what happened. It's just like, it is weird. So this is 1905. He's planning to take over his lease, setting up an expedition. There is a guy named Herman Blenner Hassett. He provided friendship, support, and money and like supplies for his, his expedition. He also provided an island fortress for him to plot from. It wasn't actually a fortress, it was just an island where he was stockpiling stuff. So it's like Burr is starting to become a full-on Bond villain. So the first reports of in the newspaper of Burr trying to raise an army and start a rebellion in the West are happening in 1805. Uh, in 1806, he meets with some a British like diplomat and promises the conquest of D.C. and to, and also promises to the Spanish members the, the dismemberment of the colossal power, which is growing in the very gates of New Spain. And Spain gives him a few thousand dollars. He is legitimately trying to plan a revolution at this point. We have documents. There's papers. We know this. The D.A. in Kentucky finds out about this. Joseph Hamilton Davis. There were a lot of Davises. And Hamiltons. That's what I mean. Oh, I mean there were a lot more Hamiltons than we know about, I think, oh, because yeah. he had a lot of lady he friends. Did. So he wrote to Jefferson that he was sure Burr was plotting to provoke a rebellion, but Jefferson dismissed this because he thought it was politically motivated. So then the government governor of Ohio grows suspicious and raids the island, raided the island, raised the militia, seized all of his supplies, and a large portion of his small army, but his uh, herald escapes. Is it Harold? Herman. Herman. Whatever. He doesn't matter. They escape with a boat and a small portion of their men and supplies and make a break for it. At this point, Wilkerson, who we were talking about before, decides he's going to rat out Burr, his co-conspirator in all of this, to Jefferson. So Jefferson finally takes the shit seriously. Wilkerson had a bunch of letters and stuff that he edited to make himself seem less guilty in all of this and basically destroyed all of the evidence that could have convicted Burr in an attempt to cover his own ass. So Jefferson orders Burr's arrest with almost no evidence. He's like, yeah, this guy's plotting this this plot. And so Jefferson already kind of hated Burr a lot. So he orders his arrest. But then all of this, there's this big bounty of this manhunt for Burr. Re- word reaches Burr about this. So he turns himself in. Then he hears the charges. Then Burr escapes into the wilderness. <laughs> not a man well equipped for life in the wilderness no he is not because he is recaptured and then taken to virginia to stand trial 140 witnesses including andrew jackson were called to testify against burr and his conspiracy his conspirators jefferson also issued a stack of blank pardons to the prosecutors to basically you know get people to testify it's like yeah it's like we'll pardon you if you testify against burr that I feel like set a very dangerous precedent that lives until today. Oh, the, you want to hear how the dangerous precedents continue to be set until today? Oh, dear God. So, Jefferson, meanwhile, Burr's lawyers are trying to get documents from Jefferson. But Jefferson claims executive privilege and he's protecting state secrets. So he is not going to provide any of these documents that Burr's people are asking for. And basically that the president is, in fact, above the law. Huh. Yeah. Thank goodness we've never had any presidents who commit crimes. But wait, there's more. The judge decided, it's like, we will issue, it's like, I have no problem issuing the subpoenas, but the chief justice declared that the president was subject to the law and you could issue subpoenas and charge the president and claw in all of these crimes. So remember kids, when the founding fathers were alive, they totally were okay with charging the president with crimes. 
I don't know what you're talking about, Austin. There is no such thing as a criminal president. So are you ready to hear more stuff about things that are totally happening right now? No. Burr gets acquitted of these crimes due to a lack of evidence. And he failed to commit an overt act of treason. Effigies of him, he and his co-conspirators were hanged and burned by the public. They were furious over the fact that Burr was actually innocent. Burr failed upwards. It's like he tried to commit treason and it did not go well. Also, um, Wilkerson, during this trial, there was some awesome shade about this guy thrown. Um, he was described as a mammoth of inequity, the most finished scoundrel. Most finished scoundrel. Like mm -hmm. he had completed his entire scoundrel education. He had, had, he had his PhD in scoundrelness. And the only man I ever saw who was from the bark to the very core a villain. Really? Yeah. I mean, that is the only man they ever saw who was like that. I'm mm -hmm. sure there are others. Well, I mean, if I saw a man who had bark for skin, I would also assume villain or possibly Groot. Or one of those people who has that horrible disease that makes them look like that. Oh, yeah, it makes sense because Burr was kind of a Bond villain, so he needs his, like, monstrous henchmen, like Jaws or Oddjob. You don't know what I'm talking about. So, anyway, after this trial, Burr fled to Europe, where he tried again to start a revolution in Mexico. England didn't think that was such a great idea, so they kicked him out. Yeah, England's not too keen on Americans and revolutions. For <laughs> yeah, I know. Reason. He's like, so, Mr. Burr, I understand you have already started a, a uh, revolution, as it were, but for us, and so we would like to politely decline, and if you would please to, sir, leave. So then he went to France and tried to get Napoleon to support the same revolution. Uh, he was denied, so Burr broke, had to beg his way for passage back to America, where he changed his name to Aaron Edwards, presumably to escape his creditors. Can I do that with my student loans? Yep. My name is now Aaron Edwards. Got it? Got it. So, uh, you thought I forgot about Wilkerson. I didn't. Wilkerson was investigated twice more for conspiring to secede the West. He was allowed to keep his military command, and he survived multiple court martials, and also lost a ton of battles in the War of 1812. He was losing stuff left and right. He was just a colossal failure. And I found this quote about him. He never won a battle or lost a court-martial. He died years later in Mexico City as an envoy, where he was, yet again, conspiring to secede the Western United States. Wait, though, I thought that after the American Revolution, everybody got along and nobody wanted to secede until the Civil War happened. Oh, no, no, there was, yeah. Also, another fact, this is in 1854. They finally find all these documents proving Wilkerson's like involvement in all of these conspiracies and how ridiculously guilty the guy was. And that is the bizarre story of the Burr conspiracy. All right. So, do you have any questions for me? No, because I did not do the homework. Actually, yeah, I do have questions. <laughs> Would the names of the all three expeditions sent in the Louisiana Purchase be on the test? No, just Lewis and Clark. Yep. Would there be any mention of baby grizzly bears? On the test. On the test, no. All right. Zebulon Pike, is he even in the test? Not that test. That's a geography class test. Yeah. How about any mention of Wilkerson? I remember him being mentioned in school, but probably not important enough to show up on a test. And any mention of Aaron Burr after he shot Alexander Hamilton? Absolutely not. He just wanted to be in the room where it happens, you know? With his daughter. Yeah, and so I didn't even go into that. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole other episode. I really wanted to focus on this conspiracy... And not how Burr lost his damn mind after he shot Hamilton. We have not thought of a clever way to end this. No, we haven't. So, 
what thing that won't be on the test have you learned this week that you're excited about? I guess something we're excited about. I want to learn about whether or not there are grizzly bear ghosts. I think we need to learn about grizzly bear ghosts. Yeah. Oh, wait. So extra credit. We learn about grizzly bear ghosts. Extra credit. Um, what about you? Extra credit. For Krista McAuliffe. What For Krista McAuliffe. What did you learn today? I learned that Krista McAuliffe was, not, was probably not made aware of how dangerous all of this was. I mean, I'm always willing to assume that Reagan was part of a conspiracy. That's what I do best. I also learned that she might not have died immediately and her students had to watch her fiery descent into the ocean. And it took him 10 weeks to recover the bodies. Yeah, remember when I said, I asked you if you knew the most horrifying part and you said no? Yeah, I assume the most horrifying part was like the fireball. Yeah, no, for me it was her students because I I didn't know about the uh, possible not death immediately. But to me it is really the fact that her students had to watch it and then the remaining teachers had to figure out on the fly how do we handle not just the death of a teacher but one that the entire class saw. It's so weird how quickly like they forgot how dangerous spaceflight was because like all of the Apollo missions was like tons of danger. I mean they lost entire crews regularly through that. And that was like within her lifetime. How did how did people forget this? I kinda wonder if she didn't fully communicate it to her husband and children. Because like I'm not sure I would fully communicate it to you because I didn't want you to worry. It's true. If I would be super worried about you anyway if you decided to become an astronaut because you have motion sickness and throw up and then people would eat and vomit. I believe that was a direct <laughs> quote. Let me go back to my notes here. <laughs> yep, direct quote. Yep, I mean, I can't tell you how often I mention eating vomit. Oh my god, we really didn't think of a way to end this. We're just going to keep going. <laughs> um, sorry guys, you live here now. We're stuck. You're stuck with us. Bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>